Welcome to How to Decorate from Ballard Designs, a podcast all about the trials and triumphs of decorating and redecorating your home. Each week, they'll help you unleash your inner decorator. I'm Caroline. I write the How to Decorate blog. And I'm Taryn, and I'm a product designer. And I'm Karen. I head up Ballard's branding team. We're We're your hosts. Join the expert team at Ballard Designs for tips, tricks, and tales from interior designers, stylists, and other talents in the design world. Plus, we'll answer a listener question at the end of the show. So don't forget to send them to podcast at BallardDesigns.net. Yes, we love answering them. And now, on with the show. Okay, should we should we do some trials and triumphs, ladies? Yes, may I go first? Yes, you may go first. Uh-huh. Okay, so I know that, um, that uh, well, I know Christmas is well behind us, but um, I have a sort of a lingering issue with my Christmas. So I moved things out of my living room to make room for my tree. And I mentioned this last year, I have this console I usually have in my living room and I move it into the dining room to accommodate the tree. And I love it in the dining room. I mean, I loved it last year. I love it this year. And so I decided to leave it in the dining room, which left a big fat hole in my living room. Um, So I've been rearranging my living room and I'm so pleased with the results. It's a big old domino effect. You guys know how it works. So um, I moved some chairs around. I had those little French chairs that I had recovered and I've talked about. Um, So I moved them into the nook where the console was. It's uh, to the left of my fireplace. It's sort of a, uh, you know, recessed area next to the fireplace. And I stuck them in there and I really like it. It's another little like uh, sitting spot. And then I've I've ordered a very large mirror um, to to lean behind them because it needs some height, you know, right next to the fireplace with the art over the fireplace and all that stuff. So, and I didn't want to hang another piece of art right next to the art that was over the fireplace. I felt like that would be weird. So I ordered the Wilcox mirror from us and it's just super simple, um, a flat metal edge of a mirror, just mm-hmm. a rectangle um, that I'm going to lean right there. And I think it's going to look really cool. I'm pretty excited. That's exciting. Yeah. exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would mirror shopped and this is not to like be a big, you know, Ballard commercial, but I mirror shopped because I was like, I wanted to look around. I wanted to make sure I got the exact right one. I mean, this mirror costs $600 which seems like a lot of money until you go look around at other people's mirror prices. I could not believe how expensive some of those big mirrors are. $1,700 and stuff for mirrors that same size. I was counting mm-hmm. myself yeah. lucky to get it for 600 So I am excited. Hasn't gotten here yet, but when it does, I'll let you know. And we need a picture. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. That's mm-hmm. super exciting. Mm-hmm. Yes. That is oh, exciting. And then I have a trial slash trial. Okay. So... I use inside my doors um, mats. So, you know, I usually have a doormat outside, but I also like to have inside my door, like a little small natural fiber, like two by three, mm-hmm. you know, that's just sort of gets the dust off your feet. Well, the one in my front, on uh, my side, my front door just sort of is disintegrated and it's dark brown, the color of the floor. So you don't notice it at all, but it's just now like the latex is coming off. It's a disaster. So that's my trial, but I triumphed over that by buying this adorable, I was inspired by Caroline because she was saying that you did your whole room around that rug you fell in love with off that side. I went and looked at that side and then I was like, oh, like an old Moroccan rug actually would probably be a very good solution for inside of a door because they're very durable. They've already lasted forever. Um, And especially if I got one that was a darker color that would sort of blend with my floor and wouldn't show a lot of dirt. So 
I went on Etsy and got mm-hmm. one. Uh, yeah, yeah. And super unique and cool. And I'm really excited about it. I mean, I feel like it's going to be really a perfect solution. Very durable. The end. That is great. <laughs> yeah, that is awesome. I, Y'all, I just cannot say how much I love Etsy. I, it's great. Like, I it's it. a great resource. Yeah. I mean, to find something different or unique or, again, one of a kind, you just, it's very nice. Okay. Okay. Well, speaking of trying to find things, um, my trial is, guys, I kept a few bricks from our old ranch. And I mean, just a few. So I'm not talking like I'm doing the whole mudroom floor. I need to think of something. I want to celebrate the old house. By putting these bricks in somewhere but we're doing hardy plank on the outside so it's not like i'm putting these into the wall of just the house mm-hmm. so i have not found anything of course my husband's like just get on pinterest and show me what you want and i'm like i don't know part of us are thinking like by the back door maybe like a little like make a rectangle where you would put down a rug which is why it, it kind of actually works with karen's um and so maybe it's like a little like landing before the wood floor starts. Or do I do something around mantle? I don't know. I mean, we got about 40 bricks. It's not a lot. But so if you guys see anything with some small detail, let me know. Because I'd like to put them in. Okay. What about like a, okay, this is not the actual application I'm suggesting, but it's an example. The first one I could think of. What about like <laughs> where you're doing your wet bar, where it's mm-hmm. going to be sort of, like as a backsplash mm-hmm. or like in a nook, maybe there's like some sort of nook or like, nook where you put or like it maybe in your powder room or like somewhere mm-hmm. where it's just a small amount of space, mm-hmm. you know, and you could either do it on the floor or do it on a wall. Well, I don't think your bar is the right place because I feel like no, no, your no. bar is going to be a lot more glamorous than what you're No, I agree. I don't actually mean the bar. I just mean like that, like mm-hmm. a, a spot that's built. Yeah, somewhere place where there's a small built-in kind of spot. Yeah, like maybe um, it's um, like in your artist studio or something yeah. where there's like yeah. some built-ins for... If anyone has an idea that they really like or they did to let me know because I would like to put them in because we did save them, which was... yeah. A triumph. Um, and then I had another question, and this is a trial as well. Sorry, guys. But, okay, so you know how in powder rooms right now, people are doing, you know, the bold and the dramatic. But they're doing the sinks. They're not doing really, like, big vanities and something like that because you don't need much, right? You need toilet paper mm-hmm. for guests, maybe a hand towels. So we really want to do um, the same where it's not a vanity. It's just a sink pedestal, some kind of pedestal, essentially. But then you have no place for toilet paper without putting in like a piece of furniture. So I had suggested maybe we do like some like lower paneling and then wallpaper above. And then like in the paneling, maybe one is like a secret little door that just holds toilet paper. Is that a thing? Can't find it. Can people find it? You would have to have a knob that made it so like this opens. You'd have to have Mm -hmm. it enough of a like, hey, this opens, but without being like open. Yeah. So it's just a niche in the wall that has a door. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Essentially. Is that a thing? Or is that the best solution? I don't know. So it's the thing. Yeah. Here's what I do. Not as complicated. No, tell me. I need to know what people are doing because in these beautiful shots, you don't see much. Like I well, 
put mine, I have a lantern, you know, like a tall glass lantern. Mm-hmm. Like we sell brass ones. Mm-hmm. Mine happens to be oh. red. And I just put three in there and close the door and stick it in the corner um, under the oh. sink. And it's That's- cute and they see it. And they know it's toilet paper. And- very simple. Um, but I mean, okay. there are so many good looking lanterns too. That's a great one. Also, Taryn, I would assume that whoever was taking photos of these rooms just takes it out. Yeah. Yeah. They're cheating. You know? They're cheating. Okay. That helps me feel a little bit better because I'm like, there. there's never any of this. And I don't really want to be building a custom house and then being like, oh, I, I now need, I don't know, a piece of furniture in there if I don't need a piece of furniture in there. I like the idea of the little niche in the wall. I think that's I very do. smart. That was my only thought. Okay. Yeah. I think so. All right. Well, that's mine for today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want Joe's advice. So that works. (laughs) I I think it's very smart. Yeah. As long as you have a little knob, why not? Something to tell people to Karen's Mm -hmm. point. Good point. Keep us posted. I'm very Mm -hmm. curious how you solve this. TBD. So I really don't, I'm sort of in the middle of my project, um, my den project. So I really don't have Mm -hmm. too much more to report other than my, paint and my rug and all that but I will say that my new dishwasher is in and I'm very excited about that um so that was good and um (laughs) I uh, (laughs) um that's really kind of it I don't really have a ton of other things going on I have I have a a lot in the works but nothing really to solidly report on I will say that we're doing a lot of art reorganization so that is you're gonna post photos though right yes i so i did i did order a sectional um so once i get all once i get that in then i'll hang the art i you know you'll give us yes yeah okay okay all right fair on to our guest Okay, so we are thrilled to welcome back on the show Andrew Kogar, president of the award-winning architectural firm Historical Concepts. He has a new book out, and we were excited to read it and question you all about it. It's called Visions of Home, Timeless Design, Modern Sensibility. And welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. It was so much fun to kind of reflect on some of the conversations that we had had with you back in, I think it was like episode, it was back in 2018 and see sort of how, um, you know, get to read the book and see how spaces have evolved and how you're really putting all of those, um, elements into practice. And, um, I wanted to kind of start with, so the founder of the firm, James Strickland, wrote the introduction to the book, which you wrote, and he talked about sparks of joy and creativity. And I was wondering, I I felt like that was such a, um, like, I love that phrasing, because that's not really something I would expect for the architect to be adding into the home. You know, you think of sparks of joy and creativity that, that to me, I feel like color and furnishings, I don't necessarily expect that to be in the design itself. But when you're going through this book, there is absolutely that. So I wanted you to, I was wondering if you could maybe give us some examples um, of, of what 
that means and, and why we need it? Well, I, mean, I think after uh, after the past year, I think the uh, the need for sparks of joy is definitely uh, abundant for everyone. Um, but I think especially in terms of architecture, I mean, people are living in their homes and using their homes uh, much more consistently and in broader uses than I think they'd ever had wanted to or hoped to or dreamed of before. Um, so I, I think that uh, it's been fun for us to kind of see through that lens um, the resiliency on some of these sparks of joy, these ideas of how you can turn, you know, something maybe a little bit more mundane or familiar into something exciting and inspiring. And I think that only comes, um, for us from the chance that in picking up where I left off in the last conversation through collaboration, collaboration with the clients, collaborations with the interior designers, the landscape architects, finding those moments where you can take the ordinary into extraordinary. And um, yeah, there's just a lot of ways to, to do that, whether it's interpreting um, historical vernacular architecture and turning um, what might have been a more closed off space uh, and opening up with glass and really bringing in uh, light. I mean, for us, you write color and vibrancy and the interior designers get to uh, put a little bit more of the wow or pop into, uh, into the home, sometimes the personality. But I think where we get to, as architects can instill the personality is through how we're embracing the outdoors, how we're embracing the circulation from one room to another, you know, how that drama unfolds when you go from one space into the next space and how you perceive it. Um, and as well as just the amount of light and outdoor connections that you're bringing through the space. So um, it's there. Maybe it's a little bit more subtle at times. Um, and I think, some, honestly, I think some of the best architecture is the most subtle, where it's guiding you and shaping you. You don't even know it. It just feels intuitive. And I think that that's hopefully what comes forward in this book. Even though there's a lot of different styles and a lot of different regions, I think that those guiding principles of always kind of pushing ourselves to discover, to be playful, to tinker, and to um, really just try and get the most for our clients is, is what we're all about. Real, that idea of collaboration really came through a lot for me as I read the book. Every single project started so fundamentally with, okay, the client, what does the client want? Not just... Um, in the look of their home, but how they want it to function and some, some really outside the box things people come to you with. Like, I feel like one was like, I want a village or I want, (laughs) (laughs) you know, um, and all over the place, you know, and, and one, you know, one woman had, you know, a long, 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 long list of very specific things that she wanted. And is there a point where that becomes, more of a burden, like, God, I want so much stuff, or that's never going to work? Um, or is it something that's like a fun puzzle? You know, I would say that uh, it's definitely more the latter. I think that uh, there's certainly limits to everyone's creativity and imagination, but because we're both collaborative externally and internally, it's, it's a lot of room for fresh ideas. So kind of our design process and how we're guiding and moving with the project um, you know, if we ever get to the kind of architect's version of writer block, there's three other people that can help kind of chip in. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's what keeps it from being daunting and, and makes it fun. And when you solve those problems, um, you know, when you take you know, a house of a thousand vignettes and still make it a coherent experience and a coherent home, uh, the reward on that is, is off the charts. So it's, so it's, mm-hmm. um, I, it's, it's definitely not always an easy process, um, but I would say it's always a rewarding process. And I think when you look at the home and kind of look back, and that, that was the joy I had in writing this book, um, is that, you know, several of the projects were my partners, not mine, but getting a chance to kind of look through 
their eyes and through the client's eyes and kind of see almost how the story of the home unfolded through the design. And you can kind of see where, oh, well, that's where this team member kicked in. And that's where I remember the meeting where this idea came up. Um, that's a lot of fun because then this, the home's really telling its own story um, mm-hmm. as well as how it lives through the clients. So you speak to creating a narrative when you start this process. So speaking to what you just said too, do you feel like the narrative is is visual too? Like you can see it as you, now that the project's done from where you began? I, you know, I certainly hope so. That's our intent is that you can quote unquote read the house. You can almost see how it, um, and of course, a lot of this is imagined. Uh, so I don't want to be too literal, but you know, it should feel, it should feel appropriate. It should feel like, okay, I could see where that house started in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, wherever our departure point is, and how it got to where it is today. And it makes sense. It feels natural. You can see that progression. Um, I, I think that uh, being able to read the house and imagine those those narratives is really important to us. Not to say that we don't, we, we change the narrative. So as authors, we take, uh, you know, it's a, it's a lot of times it's a tool to, to an ends to a mean. So it's not like we write this narrative and say, okay, this is the biography of the house. It's not changing. It's not moving. What we use it is, is a tool to help guide us through the design. And then when we get a point where the client needs something from a lifestyle standpoint or from a aesthetic standpoint, we bend to that. And then we kind of say, okay, well, can we rewrite the narrative that's still plausible and still um, matches with where we want to go now? And a lot of times we can make those two work. And so it's really more of a, a spirit or a guiding sense of uh, appropriateness and a guiding sense of cohesiveness as opposed to a script, if that makes sense. It occurred to me, could, could you kind of explain what that concept yes. of the house narrative is and how the the reason you have it kind of um, based on your firm's sort of uh, like ethos. Yes, ethos. Perfect. <laughs> well, I think for us, the narrative is a way for history to come to life. Um, you know, you can look at a lot of architectural history and art history books and kind of pick apart the um, the, the different pieces, the different proportions, the different detailing of what makes it a certain style or this or that. But in reality, uh, all architecture is response to cultural needs and, and homeowners. And so by, instead of giving an art history lesson that can be dry and say, oh, no, no, this would have been this proportion, right? We kind of get to um, what were the tastes of the time? What were the cultural drivers at the time? You know, more of the why these, these homeowners and these clients made the decisions they did back in the day, and we try and apply that for our current clients. So rather than just say, oh, this is a house that would have been in the 1830s in an abstract sense, you can say, well, this would have been a house that a young farming family started with, and it would have added on over time with this generation, or it would have taken a turn with this advent of technology, or in the 30s, this is what a lot of the the style setters and trendsetters were looking at. I mean, and so when you start to kind of speak in, and we loosely kind of develop characters or develop this narrative of the land or people that could have inhabited it. We've had some clients uh, like the Dowager Inn project that you'll see that got very literal. <laughs> and, and it, 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 I mean, it was, it was amazing to see them present this essay and, uh, and, and for me to read it, I'm like, this is a novel. This is, <laughs> I mean, it was great. So, yeah, but then there's other ones where we're developing that in a more loose narrative. And, and mm-hmm. Characters aren't necessarily fleshed out. Um, and it's not as uh, not as scripted, but it's still there in the background. We're still always trying to kind of imagine what was the life of the home before we started. Mm-hmm. 
And I imagine this helps to kind of rein your clients in too. Maybe in like if, you know, if they come to you like three months into the project. And I think this is what we were, I think we talked about this um, the last time we chatted and they're like, oh, we want a, um, a sliding farmhouse, a sliding door on the inside. And you're like, well, that's not, it can help you like sort of. Yeah, it, it keeps like it from being about pieces and, it, and it's really, it, and it's a way for them to articulate because uh, A, they can share in that storytelling. So it's a less intimidating way of collaborating in the design if they don't feel like they have the vocabulary or the comfort to, to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, not, they don't feel comfortable drawing. They don't feel comfortable articulating necessarily emotions in a way that resonates to architecture. But they can kind of create and add to these experiences. And if we can tell have them, and sometimes talking about a fictitious person or family or period of time is a way that they can talk about themselves without feeling like they have to talk about themselves. And so it's a way for us to understand the experiences that they're looking for the house. And then we can develop a framework to create those experiences. Um, So it's, you know, like all good storytelling, it's just about being able to communicate and evoke ideas and being able to then re-express them in this case in architecture. Mm -hmm. How do interior designers like this narrative thing are they all on board they're like y'all crazy i just want it to be pink (laughs) yeah there's definitely times where i can sense that we're being humored and i don't want to um i don't want to overstate it because it's not like um okay chapter three at every meeting yeah we're talking about the next chapter. it's not (laughs) overt um it's more of a background and peripheral uh it's kind Mm -hmm. of Start when we're looking at imagery, it may be used again when we get to a turning point or a decision point in the project. Um, but uh, for the most part, um, I, I have found that almost all the interior designers like it because it is pulling out, um, it's getting clients to talk about themselves and talk about their needs and, and being mm-hmm. able to do it in a confident way. Um, we've had several uh, interior designers that we collaborate with that are really all into it, that love kind of the architectural history, the art history, and kind of um, it never gets to feel like a period piece. I mean, we're not recreating like a Colonial Williamsburg house. You know, it's not a state. Right. Um, but but it, it can it can be um, is is informative uh, or it can also be a counterpoint. You know, whether we're doing, we've got this very kind of driven farmhouse aesthetic, and then um, you know the interior designer is riffing off of that and doing mid century modern, and, and you know, and it's almost kind of more of a minimalist interior. So um, even if it's not that they're drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak, and diving in, it's still informative to the process and they can either play with it or play off of it um, to success in, in both cases. And mm-hmm. I hope you see that in the book, you know, that there, there's definitely, I think, some really striking interiors that are, um, I think, playfully uh, a counterpoint to the historical narrative that we're setting. Yeah. Uh, I think it's genius because, you know, I imagine if you've got this piece of land and you're like, okay, I want to build a house. I love historical concepts. They build like beautiful, tasteful things that look appropriate to the place we are. Like it just, it makes so much sense. But then you're like, I, I don't know what that means for this place or, you know, I need this many bedrooms, but I love, you know, a farmhouse, you know, like I, I think it's just so smart. Um, I also did want to just tell people that, the interior designers that y'all have partnered with on these projects, y'all, there is some incredible talent in there. So you're going to go for the architecture, but there's just some delicious 
interior design <laughs> and Gamble, Barbara Westbrook, yes. Amanda Nisbet. It's so like, good. So good. So really, good. really great book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah, we, we pinch ourselves. I mean, it's it's just amazing to see um, how, how when you get the team together and, and landscape architects too, I think are really critical to what we do. When you get the whole team together, it just takes a life of its own. I mean, um, when, when the team's right, the clients have just as much fun kind of watching all, all, all of us get together and kind of speak a third language as we're developing the design um, as they do participating themselves. So, um, I, yeah, I really, I, I, we are so fortunate to be able to work with such talented folks. Yeah. One thing that I noticed and um, I thought it was so interesting, especially considering, you know, I know many of these houses were built and completed years ago. So it's not as though they're a response to this COVID time that we're living in or we're all at home. But it did seem like um, you talk a lot about sort of like, I don't know if you use this word, but like sort of meandering spaces, breaking things up. In some cases, you have totally different structures for different purposes that maybe the clients have. And so I was wondering if this sort of more mysterious rambling kind of um I guess, I don't want to say style or trend, but it just seems like a very counter to that open spaces are the best kind of mentality we've been into for so long. And I'm so, I'm just wondering if you feel like that's kind of where architecture and people's, you know, needs are moving or. Yeah. No, I think that, um, you know, we've always kind of tried to straddle that line. I think the open floor plan is is really it, it, there's a lot of pros to it, and I think you you'll see in our houses we have a lot of um, kitchens that open up to dining rooms that open up to to living spaces. But I think we've always tried to do it with an eye for still separating or defining the spaces, even if it's not with walls, whether it's with ceiling treatment, whether it's with shifting a sight line, um, whether it's orientation to a different view. So you never felt like you were always in just one all-purpose room. Um, and I think that's helped a lot. I think COVID has really shined a magnifying glass on the Achilles heel of the open floor plan, which is <laughs> if it's messy, it's always going to be messy and you can't escape it. You can't close the doors and, and kind of make it go away. And when you have two or three people in the kitchens now continuously making meals for everyone that's uh, sheltering in place, that uh, put a big spotlight on it. Um, and then acoustically. From home and remote school, you can't get away acoustically either. So I think it's, it's, but I don't know that people are willing to let go of all the benefits from the open floor plan. So I I think that we've seen kind of what we've been doing, uh, picking up speed in in that you try and unbundle the box uh, and kind of break up these volumes that they can still flow really easily from one to another that don't, aren't closed off like the traditional formal separation but also um, you can still acoustically screen them. You can buffer them and you can kind of close them down to a degree uh, when needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The idea of guest privacy was something that you, I felt like touched on a lot uh, on the, pro- in the, in the projects, in the book, a lot of M's in that sentence from the reason, um, <laughs> you know, where sometimes it's different wings or it's, you know, you can't really access each other unless you go through certain rooms, that kind of thing. Is right. that something that, um, that you're seeing people wanting, you know, or is it just when you get to the sort of level of size of home, people kind of insist on more, more privacy in their own lives? Some of it has to do with scale and some of it has to do with how long uh, people want the guests to stay or not. And we yes. can uh, we can accommodate that or, or make that, uh, 
you know, a little bit shorter duration depending on how we set up the architecture. But I think that we, you know, we always try and kind of think of it from three lenses. You know, it's the homeowner and their experience. Then you kind of step back and say, okay, what's the guest experience? And you can take a layer back and, you know, how are you going to uh, service or function the house? Whether that's the homeowner's you know, serving meals and doing laundry on their own or whether there's help that's coming in to do that. You know, how do those things function uh, without the detriment to the household experience or without the detriment to the guests? So when you kind of put yourself in those three different shoes and walk through the house, you, you notice different things. Um, and I think that um, you, you don't really want to go overboard in accommodating the guests, but if the guests have a sense of, there's an intuitive sense of how to use the house, what spaces are theirs, what spaces they can feel comfortable in. It actually becomes a lot easier to host and entertain. Um, you know, that there can be a level of independence uh, for the guest um, that makes it you know less of a burden on the homeowner. Uh, but if you have to show them where the towels are, where the, if, if you have to go to every little detail, and you end up having to wait on your guest's hand and foot, um, showing them how to turn on the TV, where's the light switch? You, it, it, especially with some of the technology that's supposed to help with that, it can even get more. <laughs> So I think you know making things intuitive and comfortable and defined is is um, is a good thing. For Even some of them have small kitchens, which is nice. You know, make exactly. yourself a snack, make yourself a drink, stay That's out right. of my so hair. Or formal, intentional meals, but like someone could stay uh, for a couple of the houses that we've worked on with Stephen Gamble. You know, someone could stay there during the week, like if they're there visiting in the summer, go to the beach, but then really only get together for dinners, right? But you know, the, the, the homeowners are having to get up and serve breakfast and serve lunch. You know, there's a little bit of that independence. I loved, Karen sort of alluded to it a little bit, but I loved the um, the Charleston single house that was sort of, the, um, I believe Amanda Nisbet was the designer and um, that she was the one who had a very extensive list. Of, can you tell everyone about that? Because the other thing I really loved about that house in particular is how you said, um, you were talking about how your your client came to you with all these needs, and obviously she had a location, but you sort of stepped back and thought, okay, what style of house would really suit the types of things that she needs out of the house? And I just thought that was such a smart, I would have never thought to think of it that way. I thought that was just such a smart way to think about choosing an architectural style. Can you kind of explain what you were talking about? Yeah, well, um, so that one, that's a really, uh, that was a fun case study and a, and a learning lesson for ourselves. That was um, my partner, Clay Rakiki, uh, and Jim Strickland worked on that together. And um, Clay is probably one of our most um, ardent classicists and uh, you know, coming from Notre Dame, really understanding the classical tradition. Um, I wouldn't say that modern or contemporary was his uh, forte. And so, it, it, but he really was excited about what the client and what Amanda were bringing to the table. Um, so for him, you know, it was almost a way of being able to translate. You know, he kind of got into what would have been the styles, what would have been the right language, and developing those proportions, developing the typology that would meet those client needs, which ended up being the Charleston Side Hall. And then... Um, going through almost a, a process of redaction or reduction, pulling pieces off so that like you have something that feels much more contemporary, much more modern. Um, but if you squint, all the bones are there for that same classical Charleston house. And so I think um, it was almost out of necessity as well as invention. Um, and it was, it was really great to see for us because we're like, you know what, the process that we have, and how we go about researching, how we go about engaging the client, problem solving. We're excited because it really meant that this is a resilient process. We can come 
have greatly different outcomes, you know, whether it's reach, whether it's time, and still have a successful design that isn't stylistically driven. You know, it's 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 much more proportion and program driven. Um, mm-hmm. so that was that was fun. That maybe one of our most modern projects was done by our most classical architect. Yeah, and right. I think in this book too, it shows that it's one of the most modern of your of this book, I should say. Um, I wanted to talk about the same house because or this home because I feel like there was so much emphasis on the ceilings, and I've seen that recently a lot more emphasis on what people are doing to the ceiling. Is that always been the case or is that something you've seen recently that people are adding more texture or materials? Yeah, no, I think it definitely, it's a, it's a unused canvas, right? I mean, a lot of times uh, it's just so easy to kind of think of, okay, well, that's going to be a white plane. And um, you just, when you look up, it's funny when I walked through a house with Stephen uh, Gamble, like one of the first things I just catch him doing is looking at the ceiling. You know, as we're talking about, you know, what's the lighting? What's the because it, it it affects us. You know, we're not necessarily all staring at the ceiling all the time, but it does. What the lighting is, what the material is, what the reflectivity is, what the height is, really, I think, defines how we perceive a space. Um, going back to a, a more classical principle, you look at a lot of um, a lot of the great homes in, in Italy, uh, you know, from the Renaissance and from Palladio. Um, they feel like enormous rooms and spaces and volumes. When you look at the actual window sizes, there, there's more wall than there is window. But you're like, well, how does this feel so expansive? Because they understood that if you use height and you go up and your, the horizon line is above your head and outside of your cone of vision, it almost feels like you're outdoors. And it's really, it's just a perception thing. So you can have a narrow window. If it's really tall, it's going to feel like an enormous room. You can have that same area and turn it sideways and you think you're getting more of the panoramic view, but with a lower horizon line, it feels squat. And I think the same thing happens with how we perceive ceilings, you know, where that is, what that detail is. Um, so, you know, with all the interior designers in this book, uh, you know, ceiling treatments and what the materials are was, was really important. We've been doing that a long time with plank ceilings and beams and different recycled materials. But really, I think getting more expressive with plaster ceilings, with wallpaper, with paint color, um, and, and just treating it as a part of the holistic room is really important. Mm-hmm. That same project um, where the woman had the long list and did the mm-hmm. Charleston style home. Okay. One tiny little caption that I noticed it said that she asked for glass to be embedded in the ceiling above the pool. Yeah. And this is not just any pool. Like, we're explaining why there's a ceiling over the pool. Right, so there's a pool that goes in and out. You can tell it, Andrew. It's your story. Tell it. <laughs> well, you know, that that was something that uh, I think the effect is, is stunning. And it was really, um, in the daylight, it's there, but it's easy to look past, which I think is a good thing because it's not like a one-trick pony. You don't need that to be successful in the room. But in the nighttime, um, you know, as the client envisioned it with candles in the grotto and the flickering lights, it, it, it's magical. It's just a whole different perception. So I, you know, I think that um, I don't want to take credit for, uh, but because it, it really wasn't our idea, but we embraced it, pivoted towards it. Um, and it's this idea of that spark of joy, right? So here was an idea that um, maybe you know, it could have been easy to dismiss and say, well, that's not traditional or that's not you know, in, in, in keeping. Um, but by leaning in and, and working it with a material that already had a lot of shadow lines you know, in and of itself with the cypress, um, it really became this kind of uh, magical moment that's discovered, you know, in the nautical twilight and the evening hours. And, uh, 
who is this woman and can she be my friend? Because yeah. she's like so much fun. <laughs> uh, I mean, she's, she's a, she's a private person, but, uh, yeah, but you can see just, uh, in the imagination that she had in the wish list that you brought forward uh, to the project. Um, yeah, she really let us do a lot of things that, and pushed us in a lot of ways that we hadn't gone before. And, uh, we're grateful for it. Well, I also loved that she wanted a, um, oh gosh, what was it called? Like a, a writing, um, she, her all glass she, writing, writing room. Write, her all glass writing room. Yes. There yeah. Is. Whether you call it writing nook or nest, or I don't know, uh, it, what the right term is, but, uh, that vantage point is incredible. I mean, you get the whole sense of the property, you get the whole sense of kind of the majesty of the low country in one room. It's um, sort of one room that sits on the top of the house, right? It's all glass. It's yeah, yeah, it's all glass. And, and it was really intended to, uh, frankly, I wouldn't be able to get any writing done because I would just be soaking in the view all the time. <laughs> but, but it really is this, um, it's a space that when you enter it, because you get this completely uh, greater than 180 view of the marsh and where the house is located on the peninsula, um, they can even see the ocean beyond. I mean, you get to look over the trees. It, you feel like you're all alone in the low country. And never mind that there are houses really close, kind of right behind, but it's just all, it's all about the sighting and it's all about the, kind of the quality of the space. But when you cross that threshold into that, into that glass opening, um, it's just, uh, it's unworldly. It's almost like a bird's eye view. Kind of but, looking Andrew, how do you keep that room clean? I mean, yes. cool. Cool. And like, doesn't she have a glare? Like, is yeah. she looking at a screen? Actually speaking. How yes. Yeah. No, insulated, <laughs> glass, insulated glass, a well-designed uh, mechanical uh, layout is really important. And then there is a terrace, so there is access for external cleaning, too. I mean, no one really wants to talk about that stuff, but we, we make sure that we're not going to do something that can uh, that's going to fail in the future. You know, all that yeah. practical right so we will <laughs> but it's all there yeah. is she a famous writer why does she need a writing room uh well i mean she's, she's a highly creative <laughs> it's, no, it's like i yeah. an artist room i'm not you know yeah. <laughs> we can fair, fair enough. yeah 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 if you want it um, you can have it one thing i didn't notice and i loved um and i feel like maybe this kind of helps sort of give a new house sort of an old feel is you know so many of these houses are very very large i you didn't really get into square footage but i imagine they're you know in the five digits yes but i noticed there's so many and some of the most delightful spaces just architecturally were small small spaces little nooks and so i was wondering you know if someone if any of our listeners are out there and they're building a house how important is it to work these small little spaces and create these little tiny moments that maybe are just for one individual person even if you have a lot of square footage and is it hard sometimes to talk some of your clients into maybe a small bar or something when they no, have so I much think with. A lot of them get that. And, and so, you know, the houses in the book are, are definitely a range of, of square footages. Some of them are look bigger than they actually are because of that unbundling um, and, and that positioning with different views and different uh, walls. Mm -hmm. and um, but, you know, we're anywhere between 5,000 to 15,000 square feet in the book. And so you know, they're not small homes by any means. Um, but I would say that um, you know, some of them aren't aren't, uh, aren't aren't crazy either. And we do as a firm uh, a lot of a lot of houses that are smaller, from you know, twelve hundred square feet up. Um, so it's not it's not that uh, 
there's only one design process for one size home. Um, I would say that uh, you know we try and right size the room so the uh, to the use. So I think you just have to think through what is what is the space going to be. I mean, one of the most successful spaces that put a smile on my face is when we design and, it, and it's for the uh, the renovation uh, of the Bridgehampton home that's in the book. Um, there was a reading nook, it, so the, the daughters of the client came to the meeting and gave their wish list as well, which was really cute to see and, and kind of hear for them. Kids can reveal some interesting things uh, about how what's important to them and how the how the family communicates and gets together. Um, some real sincere things, which are really great to be able to build in. But um, one of the daughters had uh, a desire; she was an avid reader and wanted kind of a little secret reading nook. And so we built that in and created this space and it had a shutter for a window and had built-in uh, bookcases and a really cool little bench. And it was, it was a, it was a really tiny moment. Um, but when we walked through the house uh, after the family just moved in, we're doing our punch list walkthrough. She was in the nook reading. And so I was like, mm-hmm. yes, we, we it did worked. it. It worked. Exactly. And I think that to me is when, when there's enough honesty and communication with the clients, and they can see how they want to use the house and they can end up intuitively using it and loving it in the ways that we charted through that that's success, whether that's a little bar, whether that's a reading nook, whether that's a, you know, a spa like bathroom. Um, it's not about the big gestures. The big gestures wash away real quick. You know, when, when, when you show your friends and family and you show your guests, that's great. And from a functioning standpoint, from party, the big gestures are important, but how often is that? Five, six, seven, eight times a year. Um, the small gestures. Zero of 2020. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Never. But the small gestures are there every day, you know, every touch, every right. time you get the doorknob. So, I mean, for us, those are really important spaces. You know what just strikes me over and over again? I'm, and we're talking, but I'm also looking back through your book, which I read cover to cover. But it's so beautiful and visual. But um, it just strikes me that 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 the client has to be honest about what how they live or how they want to live those kinds of things like there's so many different in the book different needs that you address like i was just looking at the you had that one hamptons house you were just talking about and the other hamptons house was like a dude um who really wanted to sort of be like a hotel he wanted it to feel oh, the end yeah he wanted to yeah. feel like a hotel and it has like a big sort of lobby and a gallery I thought it was just mm-hmm. so great that he was honest with what he wanted. Like, I want to entertain a lot, and here's kind of how I want it to feel. Yeah, absolutely. I think that really helps. And I think that, um, again, that, that's where the narrative, again, not that we're trying to write a story, but just when we can, the narrative of, of kind of building a, a, a story of what this house could be together is what can kind of coax out some of that honesty and some of that vision and just help give clients a way to articulate what their needs and wants are. Um, it, it's, it's a way to take a little bit of the intimidation of the process out and put some of the emotion and kind of um, introspection in. Because uh, it can be really it can be really intimidating to have to sit here to, you know, when you're first starting with a client and I put myself in their shoes, they've got to tell a bunch of strangers intimately how they live day to day. That's not that's not something you just normally go around telling people. Right, so. <laughs> right, right. No, and a lot of that you're not proud of. You're like, so <laughs> right. I start in the morning with coffee before any, you know, like whatever it is, yeah, dishes yeah. promptly or whatever. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and I probably tell on myself when I get really excited about the bars over and over on each program. So there's there's a little bit of a two-way street on the reveal. But um, no, I mean, so we try and be respectful of that process. That they, Wait, they, I want to hear about what you need in a bar. Like, what's your, <laughs> I want to know. Karen's currently designing her bar, so she needs help. Yeah, no, I, I for me, it's, uh, I'm going to tell my wife's going to kill me. But for me, it's, it's much more about, um, Less is more and having you know, space for just trying to pare it down to five or six things that you really like and different fun ways to be able to serve. And so it's, it's almost more about the ceremony of mixing the drink and getting together than it is about the quantity or the. So, you know, I think pocket bars to me are some of the more successful, more used, more loved bars than as opposed to these big sprawling kind of um, hub like bars. I think you know, if you're going to have that party, everyone's spread out through the room. It's not really hanging at the bar, but it's when you have a dinner party and you've got four or six people over and you're making a special cocktail for each person. And it, it's, I think it's more about the gesture and more about the investment in your friends and kind of creating a moment than it is about uh, serving as many people as fast as possible in a separate setting. Sense. And a lot of that came from the research on the Dowager Inn. We went to London and we went to all these different uh, boutique, but it was free. That sounds awesome. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what I have to do for work. But I mean, <laughs> that was the, uh, he, he took us to all these different hotels that uh, he and his husband really um, loved and cherished. And that was kind of the common theme. It was um, do a few things very, very well, make it memorable, make it about the experience. Um, as opposed to kind of a shock and awe setting, if that makes sense. Okay, so do you need a, a sink in your bar? So I am going to be uh, in the minority. I would say no. A really cool uh, vessel for ice. I mean, you're going to have to stock it somewhere else, but I would, you know, the, the platters, the trays, the glasses you know, on display, the different types of glasses, having the different types of ice, um, not all made right there, but kind of staged, uh, to me, is where I like it. Good. That's, we're all in agreement on that one. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We, were, we were talking about this because well, we drink. And <laughs> <laughs> we were all discussing this the other day. And we were like, what do we use the sink for? Should we be using the sink for? So this is good. This is good feedback. I think it's so easy to start going the other way because then you add the sink. And then you add uh, all the ice makers right there. Then you need the dishwashers. And it starts to become a separate kitchen. That's what the mm-hmm. butler or the scullery is for. That's not the pocket bar that I'm imagining. But yeah. That's, that's me. But we can do all of the above. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. We'll draw it. And then we'll, we'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I loved the um, communal spaces um, in the in a project. Um, that little fireplace with the bench. Oh, my gosh. Yes. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, the, we call it the boot room, but just when you come in at the base of the stairs, that was a lot of fun. Um, and throughout that house, yeah, the communal spaces, the whisper room, the gossip, like they, we were literally kind of talking about how a party could unfold and how different groups would move here or there and how we could stage all those settings. But one of the fascinating things, and again, a very honest moment came to uh, for that boot room was it was just about as much about um, seeing guests off as it was greeting guests. And it's that moment that, okay, you know, successful party probably should have a lot more Ubers coming to pick people up. And where do you go and wait for the Uber that's not an awkward, like you just said goodbye, but you don't want to hang around 
the Uber shows up five minutes late. So it's a, it's almost kind of like a staging room while you're waiting for the car to come. And I was like, yeah, that's an incredibly honest, thoughtful gesture for guests. Yeah, totally. Yeah, go over there. <laughs> well, no, the guests get to, you know, they get to say goodbye to everybody and then they can kind of, go and kind of step out without having to say goodbye again. I'm sure we've all done that in a, in a party where you're like, hi, okay. Do I we just can't remember parties because they were a year ago, but when we yeah. did party, yeah, right. obviously. Yeah. Well, we used to go to them. You're right. You'd stand outside like awkwardly or like, yes, or say bye like three times. So no. Exactly. So this, this eliminates all of that. And you get a nice little fire and a nice moment to remember the house party. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. It was so pretty. I loved that. And I loved um, just the treatment of the ceilings in this home too were interesting. And that shiny white lacquer on the... I don't even know how to describe that ceiling. Yeah, that was was something else that we studied when we were in London um, because, yeah, the quality of light there is not nearly like it is in in the South. And so I think, you know, as Southerners, it's easy to take that for granted. But once you go up to – and this was going to be a house that was used in fall and winter, even though the Hamptons is kind of seen as a summer place. It was very much going to be an off-season residence for them, and they were going to host and entertain hence a lot of the fireplaces, but also, um, you know, that lacquer and the idea of the details being less architectural and more an emphasis on shadow and reflection, you know, it's, it's where, when does the light reflect? And that gives it its character and its vibrancy. That was something we uh, really studied when we were in London because the quality of lights is very similar. You know, it gets in the wintertime, it gets uh, light very late in the morning and it gets dark really early. So how do you kind of, glean as much of that light throughout the day throughout the house. Um, and uh, it really is kind of, a, to me, I've had a chance to stay there in the summer and the winter. I think it's magical. It's great in the summer, but I think what we ended up achieving um, with the architecture and interior design married up uh, in the winter was everything we hoped it would be. Andrew, do you remember any of your favorite hotels from London from that trip? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I definitely. Um, the Chiltern probably stands out the most. And I think that that was a big inspiration um, for for the for the house. Um, just because uh, so Brian's husband um, worked in London uh, for extended periods of time. And so they uh, had the opportunity to stay at a few different hotels um, as kind of extended stay. And so he really got comfortable with that one. And so when we went over there, we stayed there with him again. Really hard job, but uh, that, that was where the, a lot of the scale and the understanding of light, and the understanding of flow, and a lot of the simpler details and textures that can make a big impact uh, really came forward. And we tried to to take that spirit in, in what we were doing with this house, which then goes back to really a, a, a long tradition, especially in East Hampton, of these great old farmhouses that were turned into hotels over time. So you know, we had this kind of foreign inspiration that was near personal to the client, but we also had this local um, timeline and evolution and narrative that dovetailed perfectly. One thing you talk about, and I actually I think it was back again when you were talking about the um, the Charleston single house, but was the the just the kind of concept of creative process, and I just felt like for any creative, that's such a a great reminder. Um, you talked about how it's two words process being the second one and possibly the most important one. And, you know, it's, you don't have to get it all right the first time. And, um, you know, maybe you could speak to it, but it's a lot of trial and error and 
Yeah, I think that, um, I don't know why, uh, but in a lot of architecture schools, and I think in a lot of art schools, um, there's almost this idea that you kind of present to win and the a moment of inspiration, that unique vision is is kind of the peak of it. And, and, and it, it, you live or die by that. Um, and it's almost, uh, it's almost kind of looked down upon uh, to have to work so hard at it. But I think any successful musician, artist, architect, it's all about the hard work. I mean, and, and greatness only comes from keeping chipping away, chipping away, driving, driving, driving. And I think that's, um, we just embrace that. You know, we don't, we don't try and present to win or bowl the coin over. Um, we'll share messy, quick drawings. We'll engage them in the process. Um, and we really try and, uh, and embrace them. And so that by the time we're presenting kind of the final vision or the final idea, it should feel familiar. It should feel co-authorship. I mean, it should be every bit as, as much a part of them as it is us. Um, and I just think that for some reason, um, you look back at all the great architects we celebrate kind of the more modern era from Frank Lloyd right on. I mean, the idea of him going to his houses where his clients were living and rearranging their furniture to be the way he envisioned it. It's preposterous to me. Like that's, <laughs> I can't understand that at all. Um, so for us, you know, we're unabashedly the process and trial and error and not being afraid to fail and just putting it all out there. Um, Cause then we know that no stone was left unturned. We've done our client a full service by trying to explore every avenue for them to realize their dream. Mm-hmm. Well, I felt like that was just such a great too lesson for anyone that's decorating their house. Cause the same applies to, you know, decorating for yourself. It, you are going to make mistakes. So you just have got to go into it with that knowledge. And then that way it, it sort of frees you a little bit to make, to take some risks because there's definitely a chance it might not work how you want it, but you know, and that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Like you're going to improve upon it. So I think our responsibility as designers is just to be able to let them take those risks on paper and not when it's built. But that's another, that's another reason why yeah, we feel it's our duty to kind of really engage with them and, and, and draw and kind of show them those examples so that when it is built, there's no sense of what if and there's no sense of why well, I didn't know this. It's just, it, it's part of the process and part of community. Well, should we answer a decorating dilemma? Yes. Let's do it. Okay. So this is from Olivia and she says, hi, ladies and guests, Andrew. Uh, my decorating dilemma is my square bare living room. I attached a floor plan and some pictures. This is mainly a family room for hanging out and watching TV. I'm really struggling with the room layout. You enter this room from a small front entry and walk diagonally through the room to get to the kitchen and indoor sunroom slash playroom. So I don't want to block the path with furniture. What layout do you recommend? The brown leather couch stays for now. I know, I know, but it's only a couple of years old and super comfortable and we have some bigger fish to fry, but we are getting rid of the other furniture. Also, we've tried the couch on the opposite wall, but it feels very awkward since it's so close to the front door. We are planning to get a fireplace mantle. Should I choose a cast stone or a traditional wooden mantle painted white? And is the molding on the wall above the couch going to compete with the mantle? We have a large glass window in one wall, which looks out to the sunroom and brings some natural light. What should I put over there? How much of the room should a rug cover? Note, I'd prefer not to have seagrass or sisal because of my baby and dogs. What should I do with the wall that has the TV, a large console? What can I add there to make it less about the TV? 
I know it's hard to know what I like since my home is so empty, but I tend to like the traditional transitional styles and gravitate towards blue. This room is so depressing to look at every day, but I just can't seem to figure out a good game plan. Any feedback is so appreciated. Love the podcast. I always look forward to a new episode. Thanks, Olivia. All right. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there, it's, it's pretty empty. <laughs> yes. Um, but, yeah, it's kind of, it's a pass-through room, I guess. And um, that, to Andrew, me, was the biggest challenge uh, when I looked at the floor plan. I, I mean, I know that she was asking for some uh, furnishing and style advice. Um, and maybe this is because I'm an architect, but what my really... The bigger issue is the flow. Um, it's square square can be an amazing room. Um, and in some ways, we're, we're re-embracing kind of uh, more of a square proportion for our living rooms than a rectangle in the past. Um, but the challenge is, is that you have just completely open corners, um, you know, three open corners, one uh, visually with the window and then a large kind of bleed out to the family dining area and kitchen and then kind of the open corner that leads to the bedrooms. Um, so my advice uh, would be oddly more architectural than necessarily interior design. Um, but I would say that, I would say that people always take the they they think that building a wall is uh, this impossible task or cutting a hole in the wall is an impossible task. And it, I mean drywall and studs is some of the simplest, cheapest construction you can do. As long as you're not moving plumbing or electrical, um, it's it's really cost effective. So two thoughts, one's more furnishings and one's more architectural. Um, I would, if on the architectural one first, it looks like that fireplace is a gas insert. It doesn't look like it's wood burning based on what I saw. So I'm going to go with that assumption. Uh, Forgive me here. But if it's a gas insert, I would look to closing up that opening or whatever the, if it's a mirror, whatever that space is above the couch. And I would put the fireplace on that wall and I would incorporate it in a um, complete kind of wall of uh, bookcases and, and kind of built-ins and have the TV to, if you're facing that wall to the right, more towards that corner, um, worked into the bookcase. And I would get a big, large reading chair and kind of an ottoman there to be able to take advantage of the fireplace and take advantage of kind of that reading nook. Um, and then I would shift the cased opening uh, and put that where the fireplace was, um, assuming that those are closets and not necessarily a powder room there, and, and, and move the opening there so that you have kind of a three-sided enclosure at the left side of the room. So oh, then you, can put, you can put a couch where the TV currently is uh, or a sectional um, that really takes advantage of the natural daylight coming in from that window to the sunroom. So you would have a place you could read, you know, during the day, kind of curl up, take a nap, you know, and then look back across the room to the TV. And so you kind of create almost two zones. One's a more intimate kind of reading zone. The other one's more of a sitting, talking, uh, living room area. Um, and I think, you know, being able to also see that from the front entry and having some kind of, uh, whether it's directly on access or whether it's slightly askew, but I don't have to walk all the way around the dining room to the kitchen or a dead end or walk um, you know, all the way around to the left and hook back into the, the, the family living room. Um, so it's a little bit more idea of bringing in that informal part of the house forward. That's so smart. I would have never thought about it. So basically kind of what you're talking about is like chopping off that wall and like scooting it over and like moving, yeah, moving the opening. 
Yeah. So if you come off of where that three foot three is, you you kind of just connect that wall to yeah, the left, like, left side. Or just go straight, basically. So your yeah. So your circulation path is a little bit more on line with the family dining, uh, but then you create kind of two thirds of the room to the left that can be a seating area that's not interrupted. And then one third to the right, which is the fireplace and the reading chair and the books. Yeah. Smart. Super smart. I mean, I think that that really, that solves all of your layout issues, basically. Um, I think so, because and again, you know, like you can try and find the right mantle, you can try and find, but the mantle's not going to change the scale of the room. And if you do kind of more of that modest built in, you can save the money you'd spend on the, on the stone mantle and put it towards redoing that wall. Because then you're, otherwise you're walking, you're coming in the front door, you're turning left, and you're always going to see the end table. You're going to focus on kind of, if you put the sectional there, or you're always focusing on the side of a TV. I mean, you're just always coming in on the oblique as opposed to, the heart of yeah. the room, and it's never going to be as inviting. And it is totally weird how they chose to put that wall there, considering the front. It, like, you basically just want the opening to be like directly in front of the front door, which exactly. Is, exactly. Like, it just seems like duh, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, in, and if that doesn't work, I'm hoping that yeah, the fireplace is where they could push the roof. Hopefully that's helpful, um, but that's you know, just where our head is at. Is that um, it's just easy when you're doing a renovation to assume that the walls in place are given and they're immutable, and you have to work around them. And you can spend just as much money or frustration and time trying to solve something that if you just take a step back, look outside the box, and move an opening, suddenly you're unlocking so much more potential in the space. Um, and Olivia, in terms of the um, rug, I mean, typically I would try to put the biggest rug you can fit in the room, un unless it's an open floor plan, obviously, where you have a couple different spaces you're dividing up. But for this one, just get the biggest one that you could probably fit. I mean, as long as it's not actually touching the walls, usually like anywhere from three to a foot of space around the edges is fine. And, and, you know, you kind of asked about a console or how to de-emphasize the TV, but I think Andrew's, your solution really kind of solves it. You're sort of, you're kind of nestling, nesting the TV inside of, you know, with bookcases and, um, and with the fireplace. And so that alone would just kind of shift the focus onto the other elements on that wall. And I think your point about the rug is really important too, because that will really kind of ground and, and center the room uh, and help fight some of those dynamics of wanting to pull away at the corners visually. It help, it'll help ground and center the room in a good way. Taryn, anything to add? <laughs> I mean, he solved it. I, I was definitely like, this is a doozy, and Andrew made it seem pretty simple. <laughs> Yeah. And like you said, it's hard to, at this point, it really is. You're looking at architecture because she doesn't have much stuff. So well, hopefully that was helpful. Yeah. Good luck. I was very impressed by your answer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not something we would have ever suggested. And it really, it totally transforms the room and I think makes it a lot more uh, natural feeling, I guess. Good luck, Olivia. Okay. Andrew, can you tell everyone where they can find you, follow you, see your work, all that good stuff, buy your book? Yeah, um, so uh, the, uh, the pre-orders are on Amazon now for Visions of Home, which is uh, kind of uh, surreal just to see that on there um, yeah, after a year and a half of uh, or two years of working on that with the whole team. But um, 
we're, we're super excited about that. And uh, you can follow uh, historicalconcepts.com. Uh, we're also on Instagram. And then uh, I'm on Instagram as well at uh, Andrew Kogar HC. All right. Well, thank you for being our guest again. We loved having you back. Everyone was- get the book. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's so well, pretty. Thank you to all of you. This is always fun. I think especially if you're if you're building a house or working with an architect, uh, there's just so many good nuggets in there. So I recommend. Yes. And that's our show. You can find all of the show notes on our blog, howtodecorate.com slash podcast. To send in a decorating dilemma, email your questions to podcastballarddesigns.net so we can help you with your space. And of course, follow us on social media at Ballard Designs. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Until next time, happy happy decorating. decorating.